Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing the first of a three-part interview I did with the impossible to describe Roger Steffens. In this first part, Roger will talk about the beginnings of his various careers. As you know, if you listen to the show, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. And Roger has made both his living and his life with many, many, many arts. So in this first segment, he's talking about his having fallen in love with the beauty of postage stamps, the beauty of museums. In fact, having fallen in love with with everything visual, but also already writing, having created his very first newspaper, two pages, when he was seven, in which he not only wrote the copy, but drew the editorial cartoon. This episode will take us up through the serendipitous way in which he created his one-man show, which took him all over the world, and will end when I ask him if he got drafted. Roger is extraordinary, not only because of all of what he does, but of how incredibly interesting it is to listen to him. Hang on, here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice
Hello, and welcome to the Lynn Show. The Lynn Show is about being the person you really are, not the person you think you ought to be or have to be, not the person other people are, not the person someone told you you had to be, or as happens to so many kids, someone told you you were. No, no, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Unfortunately, too many children are discouraged from being who they really are, told in many ways that something about them is not okay. Children are teased, embarrassed, criticized, punished for things which are natural to them, things which they cannot help being, the way they look, the way they sound, the way they laugh the kinds of things they're interested in, the kinds of things they're drawn to. And a child can really not survive the idea that something about he or she, him or her, <laughs> is not all right. And cleverly, our brain learns to first begin to pretend we're not that, and over time, find a way to forget that we were ever that. And so too many people come into adulthood demonstrating a person that is only a portion of who they are and in denial for so much of what is essential to them. This, of course, is not the ideal way to live. And The Lynn Show is about saying that if this happened to you, it may not be too late to recover some of those things which you may be in denial for. As I said in the run-up, in my show, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. I do this because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And one of the things I have discovered in doing my show is that human beings are capable of being multiple things, some things which seem counterintuitive. Too many people think of themselves as unidimensional, I am this thing. Uh, artists may say, I am a writer, I am a singer, I am an actor. Fortunately, many artists allow themselves to be several things. Few allow themselves to be everything that they can be. And that is true of Roger Stephens. <laughs> when you listen to Roger, and I had to split this interview up into three pieces, you may, like me, wonder where there was the time and energy to do all of the things that Roger did, to be all of the things that Roger is. So this, this interview is just astonishing. And um, I'm not going to talk anymore because Roger says it so much better than I do. So here now is the extraordinary Roger Steffens. Okay, so I'm here with Roger Steffens in, I don't have any way to describe what I'm in? Well, the name officially is Roger Steffens Reggae Archives. Reggae Archives. <laughs> yeah. Rooms, floor to ceiling. Oh, my God. And a garage that I dare not show you. Okay, so I'm explaining to Roger that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Mm. And you're, com you're complicated because there is not an art to which you have given your life. No, I'm a dilettante. Okay, good. So, <laughs> so, what was the first art that captured you? 
I think it was the art of the postage stamp. I was a stamp collector by the time I was six years old. My mother gave me her old Scott stamp album that went all the way up to 1939. And um, I was fascinated by the images, and that taught me a lot about contemporary affairs and history and, and art itself. And also going to the museums in New York City. I, I was born in Brooklyn. And Mom on the weekend would take me to the Metropolitan and the Museum of Natural History and MoMA when that opened. And um, I, I just loved looking at beautiful things. So I've, I've always been interested in, in visual art. I was just going to say, it's all so visual for you. That's how it starts, yeah, right? Yeah, I've done three books of photography in the past few years. Okay, so um, the, the visual stuff, did you start to um, draw, paint, take pictures, any ah, of that? I drew from the time I could hold a pen. <laughs> I made my first newspaper when I was seven. Um, I got a little toy typewriter for Christmas, and it had a, a round dial, and you would turn it to the letter or number, and then there was a single key. You'd punch that, and then you'd have to turn the dial to the next letter. And I created a two-page newspaper and drew the editorial cartoon in it when I was like seven, and I would sell them in the neighborhood for a nickel. It took me, you know, a day or two to make the damn things. Um, and... Uh, so, so you began, well, see, but this is a different thing now. This is not art, this is not visual, this is literary, right? Well, literary and art, because I was drawing cartoons yes. also. I, I, was, I loved cartooning, and then when I was 10, this incredible comic strip appeared called Twin Earths. It got off to the fastest start in newspaper syndicate history. It captured the ethos of the... Uh, of the flying saucers that were being seen everywhere in 1952. And this fellow, Alden McWilliams, drew the strip with such photographic realism and these gorgeous, sleek saucers manned by a crew, all women, because they came from a planet whose population was 92% female. Okay, so wait, I want to ask now, yeah. did you... And I, I cut it out of the newspaper. I was just going to ask. So you were reading the newspaper mm. at 10? Oh, God, from years before that, sure. Did, did your mother give you a newspaper? Did you find well, it? Well, Dad you brought know? the World Telegram and Sun home every Sunday and uh, every day from work in New York. Uh, we lived out in Jersey. And uh, he, we also got the uh, Herald Tribune on Sundays, which had a great comic section. Um, so, yeah, I was, and I was a voracious reader. I could read very, very early by about, you know, four and a half or five. And I, I lived in the library. Yeah. And my best friend was this little old lady who lived in Baron von Steuben's house <laughs> in New Milford, New Jersey, uh, which had sunk about six feet into the ground. It was pre-revolutionary. <laughs> it was a great place to grow up. And... Um, Okay, so, so right off the bat, you're drawn to things visual mm. and to words. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and, and acting. And acting. Very, oh, and, yeah. We'd go up uh, from, uh, we, I was born in 42. In 1951, when I was nine, we moved to Jersey. But before that, every summer, <clears throat> we had a little log cabin bungalow in Lake Hopatcong, New Jersey, up in the northwest 
corner of it, 26 mile in circumference, biggest lake in Jersey. And my father loved it. He loved to fish, and we'd go up there every summer. And my mother would dress me and the local kids up in crepe paper costumes, and we would rehearse little plays all week. And when the parent, when the fathers would come out for the weekend, uh, we would do plays for them. And uh, so, you know, at five years old, running around Prince Charming with a sword. And <laughs> Look, I have some great pictures from that period. I'm sure you do. Yeah. But so, you know, you're by the time you're 10 years old, you've already written a newspaper. You've already <laughs> designed, you know, you've already acted. You've already, yes. Yeah. But the, the thing that I keep thinking about the art, because I didn't have any great talent in art, but I love to draw. And <laughs> you can think I make this up. We had an art teacher once a week in this Catholic grammar school I was going to named Mrs. Robinson, flaming red-haired older woman, divorcee. And she taught art, and once I drew a picture of a barn and a field, and she ripped it up in front of the class and said, you never draw blades of grass, and just tore it up and put it in the garbage. And I was so traumatized by that that I, I, I never picked up a pen probably for the next 20 years. You know, I have this... 30 years. I have this bizarre thought about that. Yeah? That she did you a favor because one more thing that you were going to have to yeah. spend on it. I mean, where would you have put it? I know. In, in the long run, thank you, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> right, right, You're absolutely right. right. She saved you from one, one possible career, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, so we have this really extraordinary boy. Is anybody thinking about what you might be when you grow up or what you might do? Are you? Well, in the long run, I, at first I wanted to be an astronomer because I loved science fiction so much. And uh, then I found out all the math and science involved in it, and I said, no, I, I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, I think maybe I was going to be a lawyer or something. I, I, I didn't have any firm plans. I loved acting. I acted all through high school and did the, the band concerts at school every year. And, uh, okay, so were you thinking acting? Yeah, you know, I really wanted to go to drama school after high school, but um, they they wouldn't hear of it. Uh, Your family? Yeah, I, I, I was the New Jersey State Oratory Champion when I was a senior in high school. The Constitution, a barrier against tyranny. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, uh, speaking <laughs> of bullshit. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, and I won a scholarship to Rutgers as part of my prize, and my Catholic high school wouldn't send the transcripts to Rutgers because it wasn't a Catholic college. Oh, you're kidding. And suddenly I got a letter with a free um, scholarship to um, Iona College, which was run by the same order of teaching brothers uh, as my high school. I hadn't even applied to it. Yeah, no, they would. They, no, they said we're not letting go of this one. No, they, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So they gave me a drama scholarship to Iona, and I had to do the lead in a play once a year in order to gain my scholarship. Well, that wasn't a chore, was it? No, that wasn't a chore, but it was the wrong school, and I, I really, I needed to be pushed and tested by brilliant teachers, and they weren't there. I, they weren't. They just weren't there. I dropped out of that place in my junior year, and I went to Carnegie Tech for a semester. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, 
right right after Robert Redford had graduated. I had some of those same teachers, and they were all talking about this guy. Everybody in school was talking about him. And they were saying, oh, he's going to be such a big star, but he's a lousy actor. <laughs> and he, he really stinks. I, I mean, his teachers are saying That's this right. in class. But he's going to be... And I said, but if he stinks, why do you think he's going to be such a big star? And they said, oh, he stinks, but he stinks with authority. <laughs> You're making this up. I am not making this up. I found a note recently from my time there, and I had written that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then what? Um, uh, and then I got a chance to, to act professionally. Uh, when I was 23, I was accepted as uh, uh, an apprentice at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater for a whole season. So in the fall of 65, I went to Milwaukee and... Uh, spent the next six months acting in Milwaukee. So you must have thought that was going to be it. Well, that was an open door. It was an open door in a way I hadn't expected because there was a wonderful, rather large black woman who was acting with us in one of our plays named Joanna Featherstone. Mm -hmm. And she heard me warming up my voice in the dressing room one February night, bitter cold Milwaukee night, uh, reading E. Cummings' poems. And she said, I'm an English teacher, and um, I'd love you to come. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. I'd love you to come to my 8.30 English class and read poetry to my kids. And at that point, I had a red uh, walrus mustache and the beginnings of a red beard. And um, I, I said, they'll kill me. <laughs> it was a black high school. Oh. A black high school. Uh, I, I said, you know, they'll look at me and they'll go, no guy with no beard's going to read no poems <laughs> to me. And she says, oh, no, no, they're, they're cool. So I brought along Gregory Corso, and I did Marriage, and I did some Cummings, and I did a, a wacky guy in Milwaukee whose work I just loved named Bob Watt, who was an insincere Zen master and <laughs> ran an exterminating company called Ridapest, End Your Bugdom Now. And he wrote deliberately bad poetry so you could compare yours to his and come off feeling much better oh, about your own amazing. work. And then they were doing uh, Macbeth in class, and I knew the dagger speech, and she asked me to do that. And I, I thought, well, if I just walk out there and do cold Shakespeare, no. So I, I had been a huge fan of Lord Buckley. Remember Lord Buckley? Lord Buckley was the guy in the taupe. Who, who had a slight English accent and uh, interpreted everything in a hip vernacular. He translated uh, oh, I do Friends remember. Roman's mm -hmm. Countrymen right. to hipsters, hipsters <laughs> and finger-popping yes. daddies, knock me your lobes. Yes, yes, yes. And, yes, yes. and uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi was the hip Gan, and Jesus was the Naz. Jesus saw the kitty with the bent wing, made it straight, yeah. And uh, the Naz. So... I told the story of Macbeth as Lord Buckley might have told it. Oh, my God. And then segued into the dagger speech straight, and they just loved it. And I was asked to stay for the second period. And by the third period, that had, they had every English class at that hour in the gym, and I was doing my one-man show, Poetry <laughs> for People Who Hate Poetry. <laughs> And that took me all over the world. I did it for over two million people. I had a television show in Vietnam after I got drafted, reading poetry to the combat troops. Oh, hold on, on hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold so, on. So this happens... 66, early 66. Well, yeah, but 
spontaneously without any um, without any influence from you. Yeah. Yeah, you don't even have this thing until it emerges in this. So, okay, so how do you get from having created it in the classroom to doing it? As well, a the first break was the, uh, she called the uh, Milwaukee Journal and told him about how I spent six hours at the school turning kids on to Shakespeare. I, I have the, the clipping on the wall. Young actor is hip on Macbeth, makes teens dig Shakespeare. <laughs> and I had just finished my time, uh, I was about to finish my time at the theater, and I, I got calls from schools saying, will you come to our school and do the same thing, and how much do you want? I said, well, I'll do all the English classes held at each period during the day, so I'll do five five assemblies for you. With $25, we'd be all right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I had like two dozen gigs. And uh, the first and second schools I performed at, the English department chairman said, hey, you know, this is ridiculous. People come in here and do 45-minute assemblies and get $100. You're really underselling yourself. So automatically, my fee went up to $100 an assembly. <laughs> and I made so much money in those two months. I'd been working for $52 a week as an actor. Yes. 52 or 42? <laughs> no, $42.52 a week <laughs> as an actor. And suddenly I was making $100 a day. I bought a brand new yellow Mustang for cash oh in God. October. Oh, here's a story talking about art. Remember Sister Corita? No. Sister Corita um, did broad art uh, with, with calligraphy and, uh, you know, war is not healthy for children and other living things. A lot oh, of the famous yes. posters, the, the gas tanks outside uh, the airport in Boston with the huge swashes of color, that was her. She was here in L.A. At, at the Immaculate Heart College with all the radical nuns that almost got kicked out of the church. I remember that. And uh, she was uh, booked to be the uh, banquet speaker at the National Conference of Catholic Art Educators. And the chairman of the convention was um, a nun at whose school I had read poetry. And she called me up in August of 66 and said, Sister Corita just canceled. <laughs> do you do banquets? And I said, I'm great at banquets. Of course. I'm so good at banquets. Of course. I've never done a banquet in my life. I've never even been to a banquet. And so, I, I, oh, and this is, this is going to be funny. <laughs> this is something I haven't thought about in so long. I did the banquet, and in, in, as part of it, I, I talked about Bob Watt, the exterminator, and about how Bob Watt once took LSD and became absolutely straight, <laughs> tied his tie, you know, buttoned his buttons. And after the, the talk, uh, uh, three brothers, a priest, and a young nun came up circled me and they really wanted to talk and what they all wanted to talk about was had I ever tried LSD and I said well as a matter of fact if it won't get me in trouble around here yeah and they said do you know where we can get some and I go well actually I'm staying with this exterminator Bob Watt currently and and there's a couple of guys who just bought 10,000 hits from Sandoz and they came in a a package like like powdered sugar and they were putting them by hand into gel caps and getting so stoned by absorbing it they were awake for eight days 
And so I took the nun and the priest and the three brothers back to this hippie pad, and it really was a hippie pad, and they all did acid. And in the middle of it, there was this little tiny guy, I think his name was Lawrence, little brother Lawrence, he was about five foot two, sweet guy, and he's lying back on a couch, and his eyes are closed, and he's just beatifically smiling and groaning, and he's rolling his hands up in the air, and, oh, oh, oh. I said, Brother Lawrence, what are you doing? Oh, Roger, I'm rolling bubbles of air. Oh, and inside each one of them is the Madonna. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a postscript to this story. Mm -hmm. Three years later, when I got out of the Army and came back to the States, of course, I looked all of these people up. They had all left, left their the orders, yeah. every single one of them. But my work was done. <laughs> okay, so did you get drafted? So, as I said in the beginning, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. The subtext is, I hope that you are inspired to ask yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Can I talk about the life I have led with the passion and energy and delight and spontaneity of Roger Steffens? Well, I certainly hope that you can. But if you can't, it is my hope that you are thinking, can I see where I was derailed? Can I, can I figure out how I lost some of who I am? Can I figure out what I might have lost? Can I remember what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be? Can I, can I see what it is that I'm drawn to even today, but not able to access? Well, as always, I hope you got something from this show that you can use. As I said, something which inspires you, something that makes you want to listen to the next episode of The Life of Roger Steffens, in which he talks about his experience in the armed forces, because of course he did get drafted. Something that will bring you back, because I will be back, and as always, I sure hope you will be too. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray Oh, you see my face and figure I've both seen better days Well, I won't be retiring I won't slip out of sight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night Some goddamn boomerang No, I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang You see that I have had my shot My time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on 
I won't be relegated or leave without a fight. No, I will not go gentle into that good night. Still got some tangs. 